0: This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Madeline Jenner coming to you from Sydney on Gadigal land. Welcome to This Week. After three weeks of fighting, the situation in Gaza is getting increasingly
1: desperate. Children are being injured. Children are suffering trauma. Trauma. The impact, of course, is not going to be only temporary.
0: It's going to be for life. It's estimated that more than a million people have fled their homes with almost 600,000 people currently living in UN camps. Food, water and fuel are drastically low and hospitals are struggling to keep the power on.
1: In the hospital, the situation is miserable. We have no electricity in many hospitals now. We have been operating patients on the ground without anaesthesia. Mass casualties are staying, waiting in the emergency rooms where we have no ability and no beds to admit them inside the hospital. They need surgeries that we cannot do anymore. This
0: week, Australia joined other nations and the UN to call for some kind of humanitarian pause to get more aid into Gaza. UN chief Antonio Guterres says time is running out.
2: Thankfully, some humanitarian relief is finally getting into Gaza. But it is a drop of aid in a ocean of need.
0: Israel says it is working to get more aid into the area, though the bombing is continuing too, along with targeted raids into Gaza itself. Israel has vowed to wipe out Hamas and bring the hostages home, but the way forward without considerably more loss of life is very unclear. Ned Lazarus is an international affairs professor at George Washington University.
2: I spent eight years living in Jerusalem for and working for a peace education program. Since then, I've been researching, studying, teaching about peace building in conflicts, but always focused on this conflict in particular. So uh, just on a personal level, as for everyone else who cares about Israel, about the Palestinians, about the conflict, everyone who knows people there, it's it's just devastating what has happened there.
0: We've seen a couple of key developments in the conflict this week. One is these increasing calls for some sort of humanitarian pause or, or ceasefire to help people in Gaza, but we've also seen the release of a few hostages too. In terms of Hamas's strategy here, is that significant?
2: I would say that I think every hostage who was released, obviously that is saving a life and is of paramount importance. Uh, but I think it's very important to keep in perspective that we're talking about four people so far. I think there are more than 220 confirmed hostages, and there are also dozens of people whose status is unknown. So it is a very, very small portion. Uh, so it is, a. Uh, I, I think, uh, in terms of anything that would change the, the nature of the situation, it would have to be a much wider, much larger uh, release of hostages.
0: Now, Qatar has played a role in some of those negotiations. Uh, why Qatar?
2: Qatar is a very interesting actor in the, in, in the Middle East. It is a small, very small country that has uh, f- figured out how uh, to punch above its weight in a number of different ways. Uh, one, of course, is the Al Jazeera network, uh, which it created and which uh, gained tremendous popularity in the Arab world because it was uh, openly critical of Arab regimes other than Qatar. And at the time, most satellite networks were state-run and were not at all critical of their governments. Uh, so Al Jazeera is an important uh, aspect, uh, but Qatar has also used its, uh, you know, wealth from oil and natural gas to become a patron of different uh, groups around the Middle East, including Hamas, uh, which has, uh, you know, received very large uh, amounts of money from Qatar. Uh, and Qatar also uh, has been very uh, willing to be a sort of mediator or go-between between between parties, including between Israel and Hamas. Uh, And and I think uh, it's uh, attempting to uh, play that role again here and to use its close ties with Hamas. I mean, some of the leadership of Hamas lives in Qatar to play a role as a negotiator for the hostages. Uh, I'm also seeing headlines just right now that the U.S. is, uh, I think, Pressuring Qatar to reevaluate, as they said, its relationship with Hamas after this uh, plays out.
0: As someone who has devoted so much of your life to Middle East peace, do you have any hope in the situation going forward?
2: Well, I, I want to say that one of the reasons that I have worked on this issue, I'm, I'm Jewish uh, and American, and I care. Uh, about about Israel. I have a strong also uh, ethos of uh, trying to work for uh, peace and justice and all kinds of other uh, ideals that uh, I believe are taught in my religion. Um, And uh, so that led me to become concerned about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, And I think at the time that Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin was assassinated because he was pursuing peace with the Palestinians you know, I felt very compelled to try and, you know, do what I could contribute in some way to try and work towards a better future uh, in, that, in that region. And uh, it was not out of, let's say, hope, but more of a sense of urgency uh, that it was very important to for people to try and work and, you know, to change uh, the, the very painful realities that uh, this conflict has created and that continue to reproduce it. And that was, you know, that, that was what motivated me. Uh, I, through my work, I, you know, got to know uh, hundreds and hundreds of Israelis and Palestinians who courageously pursue this kind of work and have continued to even as the conflict has gotten worse, even through the very hard years of the Second Intifada, even through previous wars between Hamas and Israel. Uh, and uh, those people have continued, and I am sure that they will continue uh, uh, in the future. So their work does give me both hope and just reminds me that we we, we we need to keep to continue to have a vision of a different future.
0: This week, we've also seen President Joe Biden talk about, you know, when this conflict's over, we need to work towards a two-state solution. Obviously, that has always been the aim, but does that feel further away now than it did before?
2: That is uh, that is a uh, uh, an excellent question. I would say in one very clear sense, this makes a solution much more difficult because the most important things for building a a better future would be trust. And certainly there wasn't very much trust before and there certainly will be no trust now. And so in that sense, that makes any kind of solution very, very difficult and it will take, you know, some very profound changes and I don't think such a solution will be possible with uh, with Hamas. Uh, I don't think it was before, and it certainly isn't now. Um, in another sense, this kind of terrible wound and shock can remind people that it is such an urgent, overriding interest to try and change this reality, try and resolve this conflict, to try and create a different situation where they're not going to have to repeatedly fight Wars like this um, The previous greatest shock In Israeli history was the surprise Attack by Egypt and Syria uh, In 1973 The uh, uh, Yom Kippur War And uh, you know The terrible shock of that When Egyptian and Syrian forces Successfully surprise attacked Israeli forces uh, And initiated a war in which there were Thousands of Israeli uh, fatalities That Actually led to both Israel and Egypt deciding it was their strategic interest to end uh, the military conflict between them. So that in, in those ways, the price of that war led to both of those countries gradually and changing their policy and then negotiating the first peace treaty between Israel and an Arab state. So there is, in that sense, uh, you know, there's no guarantee, but certainly this, uh, the, this attack and this, uh, this war could, be interpreted by Israelis and Palestinians and by wider regional powers as underlining why it's urgent to really try and put this conflict in a more stable footing. Unfortunately, I think that at this point, after that attack, that uh, means that Hamas uh, will need to be removed uh, as a powerful actor, certainly as a military actor uh, in the conflict, and that is a very complicated endeavor.
0: Ned Lazarus is an international affairs professor at George Washington University. There's fresh speculation about another interest rate hike after rising fuel prices and high rents saw quarterly inflation rebound this week. The annual rate of inflation is still trending down. It's at 5.4%. But while it's falling, it's falling slowly. And that might mean interest rates need to move again. The new RBA Governor, Michelle Bullock, wasn't giving much away. She says inflation was a little higher than forecast, but not unexpected. The um, print came out a little higher than we'd been forecasting at our uh, August Statement on Monetary Policy, but it was pretty much where we thought it would come out. Emma Gray is an independent economist.
1: So... We've moved away from inflation being driven by discretionary goods and we've now moved into inflation really being driven by essential services, petrol, other types of automotive fuel, rental prices, as well as electricity. So pretty basic service needs that are really driving inflation. And unfortunately, that's a lot harder To get rid of by just limiting our demand because we can't really just pull back on on renting we can't pull back on our petrol costs if we've got to get to and from our jobs and we can't easily pull back on our electricity use either so it's really being uh, driven by outside factors and i guess what we call supply side drivers at the moment and in particular Big driver that unfortunately we can't really control here in Australia is oil prices. As oil prices have been impacted by global conflict, particularly in uh, Ukraine, in the conflict with Russia, and now might also be impacted. Uh, further by a conflict in Israel, but they also impact the prices of almost everything else because higher oil prices, higher fuel prices means higher freight costs. There's not a whole lot that the Reserve Bank can do here in Australia directly about oil prices because we're not a major oil producer.
0: And you mentioned rents as well. Now, of course, rents potentially go up uh, as people's mortgages go up and they need to pass that on to the people who are renting. So does that potentially continue to get worse too as, as rates go up?
1: This issue with rents at the moment is a really difficult one because, as you said before, the whole kind of purpose of all these interest rate rises in Australia so far has been to pull back inflation, to pull back demand so that we have lower inflation. But unfortunately, rents are this component of inflation where as interest rates go up, trying to bring inflation down, landlords, mortgage holders will increase rents of the properties that they're letting out as a way of covering their higher mortgage costs and so we're seeing this one little component of inflation where rather than interest rate rises pulling down inflation, they're actually feeding back in. Now, that's not purely just a problem of interest rates. There's broader issues with the Australian housing market and and issues of, of supply, but it is definitely worsened by increasing interest rates.
0: So what does all of that mean for the chance of a potential interest rate rise next month?
1: Unfortunately, I think we might be looking at an interest rate rise on Cup Day. So that's really because inflation was coming down and now it's heading in the wrong direction again. And that is before the conflict in Israel that potentially puts even further pressure on oil prices that then can flow through to even further pressure. On inflation,
0: but if it is largely about essentials, will it make enough of a difference to
1: inflation? So we're currently at the point where we've pulled back quite a bit on demand as, as households in Australia, and we've probably responded as much as we're going to, for the most part, from the demand side to interest rates. So it wouldn't necessarily have a big impact on inflation from the demand side of things, but it might have a bit of an impact on the issue of oil prices that we've been talking about in that when Australia increases interest rates, if we're increasing them more or faster than other countries, then the value of our currency goes up. And the way that the international oil market's work is that then it basically makes it a bit cheaper for Australia relative to the rest of the world to purchase oil and so it could have an impact through that mechanism but i think we are probably at the limit in terms of the effectiveness of interest rates on the demand side of things so unfortunately we're now kind of stuck in a really awkward place where we've still got high inflation we've also got high interest rates
0: and obviously we keep hearing about the cost of living and and the impact it's having but do we have any sense from the data of of how people are changing habits to try and deal with the increasing cost of living
1: we're definitely seeing some trends and one of those that's particularly striking is that australia currently has a record number of people holding more than one job currently one in every 15 employed people has more than one job. And we're actually seeing quite a large rate of increase in multiple job holders among older employed Australians, people around or even above the retirement age, picking up an extra job, finding that just one stream of of employment income is just not enough anymore. Independent economist Emma Gray.
0: Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has been in the United States this week, strengthening Australia's ties with the world's biggest economy. There are a number of new announcements too. A plan to increase spending on mining of critical minerals and a $5 billion partnership with Microsoft in something known as a cyber shield.
1: My visit is focusing on building an alliance for the future. Uh, How do we take advantage of the relationship that's been built? What are the opportunities that we have of strengthening the economic foundations in our relationship as we tackle uh, the challenges of the future. And building an innovation alliance between the United States and Australia is a key outcome of this visit.
0: It's all part of the government's plan to make Australia the world's most cyber-secure nation. But will it stop those scam texts we all keep getting? Catherine Manstead is the Executive Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX.
3: So we'll get three things. The first is an investment in Australia's digital infrastructure. And of course, Microsoft gets something from that too. Uh, Data centres across uh, Canberra, Melbourne and Sydney. But the other two parts of this package are investment in skills and training, as well as collaboration with the Australian government to do more to share intelligence in order to protect Australians from ever growing cyber threats.
0: And it's being called a Cyber Shield, which sounds a bit sci-fi, but what is a Cyber Shield? Some of us in the cyber industry love nothing more than a
3: kind of a a sci-fi-esque title, which uh, works well sometimes and other times can, can be confusing, frankly. But the Cyber Shield is talking about the way in which Microsoft will work with ASD, the Australian Signals Directorate, so effectively our cyber agency, to better protect Australians from cyber risk. Now, what does that mean? It means that Microsoft is, as a big global tech company, has access to a pretty huge amount of information. It gets to see a lot of the bad things that go through the internet. And Microsoft is going to step up that intelligence sharing with the Australian government to help us find the bad things and block them before they hurt Australians. I think it's important as context there to note that Microsoft has really been, if I could put it this way, fighting on the side of right for some time now. So, Microsoft played a big role and is still playing a big role um, in bolstering Ukraine's cyber defences ever since Russia invaded Ukraine. So, We've seen the power of big tech to be able to help nation states preserve their sovereignty, preserve their democracy. It's it's not an insubstantial thing to have these big tech companies. And of course, Microsoft is bigger in economic terms than the economies of Canada and Italy on the side of the Australian government in helping to protect our citizens and our businesses.
0: So does that explain why the government can't fight cybercrime on its own? Is it not something that's within Australia's capability?
3: No, and it's not in the capability of any government, frankly, to do all that needs to be done in our digital world to build cyber resilience. And I think that's one of the reasons why this announcement's interesting. It's not just the investment in and of itself, and it's not just a Microsoft story. This is the Australian government leading from the front really and saying government can't do it alone here. We need industry to walk with us. We need investment from industry and we need collaboration. And that's actually a really different way of thinking about what is a, a profound national security challenge, cybersecurity, security, to how governments maybe thought about doing that a decade or certainly a couple of decades ago. It used to be that government had all the exquisite tools they needed to deliver national security to a public that's changed. Frankly, most of the heavy lifting to defend our systems and our people and our democracy from cyber threats happens in industry because that's where most of the infrastructure sits. It's where a lot of the skills sit. So it's a real paradigm shift.
0: And when this announcement was made this week, no one was really naming names. But are we talking about threats from Other countries are we talking about? What are we talking about?
3: Well, we're talking about a range of things. I mean, we'll start with the countries because that's sometimes more interesting, but it's by no means where this starts and ends. So in terms of the countries that Australian businesses and governments would be thinking about that are known to conduct hostile Cyber operations, it's China, it's Russia, it's Iran, North Korea, and others, but they're the kind of big four bad guys in cyberspace. Uh, But there's also a huge element here around cyber crime. And we have in this world, unfortunately, at the moment, a major uh, black market economy in cyber crime, mostly offshore to Australia, so something we can only combat with global partnership, uh, and something that's causing Australian consumers and businesses a huge amount of harm. We have every month a steady drumbeat of major cyber extortion incidents where generally offshore criminals are coming down, breaking down the doors of our digital infrastructure and holding data at risk or disrupting operations and holding them at risk and trying to extract ransom payments. It's a serious problem Also, a national security problem, frankly, even though it comes from criminals rather than foreign governments.
0: And after we saw a number of those big hacks last year, the government announced it was going to do more in this space. It said it wanted Australia to be the world's most cyber secure nation by 2030. Is that even possible or, or likely? What that's telling us is the Australian government
3: recognises that what we're doing at the moment and what we were doing in the past probably isn't enough to keep up with the rapid deterioration of the threat environment. And by putting that lofty ambition out there, the signal I take from government is them saying, hey, we need to really change and really increase our focus on cybersecurity, and I think that can only be a welcome step uh, and it recognises we need to be bold, we need to be ambitious, we can't do things the way that we've always done them before. That Microsoft announcement is really the first cab off the rank of a range of different announcements we'll see, hopefully different collaborations as well with different industry partners, different other kind of really big changes that might help us move the needle on cybersecurity, more cyber shields. Um, It's one of the Cyber Minister's favourite terms. She talks a lot in terms of um, putting up cyber shields around the Australian citizens and the Australian businesses. So, this is a welcome first step in hopefully what will be a range of steps we'll be taking in the next couple of months.
0: And I guess the big question for lots of people who might have had some of their information stolen in some of those big hacks, particularly late last year, is will an announcement like this stop people from being spammed or hacked?
3: Unfortunately, there is no silver bullet when it comes to cybersecurity. I think it's a meaningful change, but no, we'll we'll probably see scams and cyber attacks get worse, frankly, before they get better. But Steps like this are part of the road that we need to take to ultimately address them.
0: But is there a risk here that we're outsourcing our cybersecurity to a foreign company?
3: Look, I think what we're getting from this is backbone digital infrastructure that actually will let more economic activity, if done well in Australia, happen. Right, We need to increase our cloud computing capacity and it's kind of cool that we're doing that by using data centres in Australia. Nine new data centres across Sydney, Melbourne and Canberra were also operated by Australians. So part of the package as well is around Microsoft training Australians through a New South Wales TAFE collaboration so that we have the skills here to be able to operate those data centres. So I actually see that, that as being two good things. For so long in Australia, we've really been technology takers. So we just buy whatever software or whatever services are coming from the US and out of big tech giants. It's actually welcome to see that coming onto Australia's shores and using Australian labour. But the other part of the story is there's a huge economic benefit here to be unlocked if we get cloud right, if we get AI right, particularly some of that next-gen generative AI that's all the rage at the moment. There is economic benefit, there's productivity benefit to be gained if we do that right. This is a part of a story Australia wants to, to craft for itself, right? We don't want to let other nations around the world craft the story for us by having Innovation and skills and digital activity here it puts us in the best driving seat to roll out next-generation computing and AI in a way that we as Australians think is good for our democracy and good for our economy.
0: Catherine Manstead is the Executive Director of Cyber Intelligence at CyberCX. And that's the episode for this week. Subscribe by searching for the This Week podcast. It's produced by Laura Corrigan, Anna John and me, Madeline Jenner. Catch you next time.